they did a really, really good job. You know who made it was she. Hello, everyone. Um, I guess I don't need this. Um, hello, welcome. I'm so excited to be here. We're so excited that Wendy C. Ortiz is here uh, for today's uh, reading. Uh, so excited you could come out, catch the water. Um, so excited you could come out uh, for today uh, for today's reading. We've got these fabulous, uh, wonderful posters. Uh, maybe you've seen them around campus um, announcing this great schedule for the spring. Uh, of course, Wendy Ortiz today. Uh, coming up uh, May 3rd, Annie Fox, uh, Tai Bui, and uh, Raquel uh, Gutierrez. Um, and uh, our wonderful, again, wonderful uh, uh, graduate students here in the MFA program uh, will be hearing from the first years as well as the uh, uh, those graduating. So we're really excited about our series. Check out this poster. Um, and I'm now going to bring up one of those graduate students, Gina, to introduce Wendy. <laughs> Wendy CRTs always returns to the body. Her body, the body of the streets intertwining into city, the body of the city, our city, Los Angeles, brown and queer and rebellious, booming and dirty and slick shined with memory. There is a condensation of experience in Wendy's work such that it is thick and sits in the throat, such that it is not only atmospheric, not pointing to a spot on the map of your imagined Los Angeles, but one that is deeply personal, a city built of worse truths that run into you in traffic. She calls this feeling, this suffocating need to speak truths, the gummy-mouthed feeling in Hollywood Notebook. It takes hold when I am speaking of something important, deep, the truth that fights to stay inside, only I am pushing it out through my mouth. In Wendy's 2014 memoir, the body is described as a container of stories which were written and rewritten daily. True to form, both the aptly titled Excavation and Hollywood Notebook stare bare, unflinching at this body and the cities which scarred it and made its back strong. As Wendy says herself in an interview with Bustle, place is almost as important to me as body. As a fellow Angelino, it is intuitive to imagine along with her the Sherman Oaks Galleria, stricken with punks and teenagers sneaking cigarettes around the fountain, one of them which was definitely me. It is also easy and terrifying to imagine the complexities of being a teenage girl reimagined through her work. Place may be almost uh, place may be almost as important as the body for Wendy, but her uncanny sensibilities, the texture of the spaces she writes from, whether fictionalized dreamscapes or localized back alley bars, seem to belong to all of us. She herself references this when she quotes Anne Carson, are there two ways of knowing the world, a submissive and devouring way? They end up roughly the same place. Let's say for the sake of brevity that Wendy's knowing of the world is all devouring. Her writing unapologetic and her process minutely addressed between loneliness and relationships in Hollywood Notebook, a process of self-doubt and self-assessment. When speaking of this relationship between the body grounded in place and the story grounded in body, Wendy warns us, you may not get my full attention. I'm listening to much more than what everyone can hear often. I try to be engaged, but often there's a story behind my eyes that is whipping around like a hurricane trying to keep my attention. Her most recent book, Bruja, A Dream War, which takes as its subject as ever the unabashed exploration of the self through the most intimate psychic space of dreams, remains honest and difficult while reinventing and rewriting the stories of the body from the innermost interpretation of the mind. It negates at every turn the impetus to make a cohesive narrative while also allowing us into her fragmentary id. In one passage, the speaker looks through a black book of poetry and asks who the author was. She's told a name which she does not recognize. She ends the passage, I skip the pages where there are photos and drawings of me. Central to all this excavation, all of this embodiment, is the central negative space which cannot be filled, a human intimacy with loneliness and pain, trauma and heartache, which makes Wendy Ortiz's work both honest and recognizable, words which we read even if sometimes we want to look away. For you who have come into identity the unspeakable way, the shame and redemption way, and the LA way, Wendy Ortiz's work is speaking to you, maybe so you will finally have the courage to speak for yourself. As she herself says, wrists curled in writer's pose, the pose to a fighters, for sometimes we are both Wendy C. Ortiz. That made my eyes wet. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to just read from Bruja today. And as mentioned, it's a dream war. Um, I did not write this definition of dream war. 
um, when I actually pitched this to the publisher, I used the word dreamoir and described it in my own way, briefly. And he came up with a definition that I really loved. And that definition is a narrative derived from the most malleable and revelatory details of one's dreams, cataloged in bold detail. A literary adventure through the boundaries of memoir where the self is viewed from a position anchored into the deepest recesses of the mind. So all I'll say is that these were written between 2002 and 2006. The large bodies of water and intense aquamarine blue threw me off. I asked my host why they were so blue and he answered, well, what blue does it resemble? No words shaped in my head. Turquoise, he answered himself, just as the word formed in my body. Nicholas left the guest house we were staying in. I hurled my keys across the room. My hosts witnessed this act and a veil of guilt fell over me. While I looked around for Nicholas, I listened to conversations that my hosts were having. None seemed interesting to me. I went to a whorehouse on my bike, Nicholas said when he entered the guest house. I felt 16 again. My rage curdled, emptied out into the room. I yelled until I became silent, withdrew from him, something we were both used to. My therapist made a house call. She walked into my childhood bedroom. My single bed was against the south wall of the room where I like to be in the summertime. She stood next to the bed while I talked. My obsession, my confusion took over the next hour. When my time was up, I got out of bed and accompanied my therapist to an auditorium. The interior resembled a barnyard. My therapist and I watched animals do tricks. People threw food and other objects at the animals and they caught every scrap in their mouths. We danced with great vigor with people dressed as various team mascots. I made up my mind to leave. My dancing was just not up to snuff. I was told to choose a knife from the kitchen drawer and my opponent would enter shortly. I pulled open a drawer in this unfamiliar kitchen and chose two knives, the serrated one I walked outside with. My mother opened the screen door for me. Once the knife was concealed in the gutter of a reachable roof next door, I hurried back inside. I held the butcher knife in my right hand the entire time. My opponent was wheeled in. He was blindfolded, but I knew this would come off when all the men in the room decided it would come off. His wheelchair had once been mangled, then refurbished. I reminded myself I was probably seeing rust on it and not dried blood. My mother faced me and I caught a scent of helplessness. Every muscle in my body became tense, constricted. Then it hit me. My body quaked with sobs. I don't want my mother to see me die, I said. And the blindfold came off the man's face. I saw nothing. When I awoke, the electricity was out. Shelves of books had fallen, pieces of ceiling tile hung loose. The air was not circulating. I looked around, embarrassed that I might have fallen asleep at work. When I finally got the courage to walk through some of the rubble around my desk and ask someone if I'd fallen asleep, just as the words came out of my mouth, I realized we had all gone unconscious, that the power of the earthquake was like that of an explosion. Black burn marks tattooed the carpet and ceilings. We'd been knocked about like toys into unconsciousness. I rubbed my eyes. This was a major catastrophic event. Injuries, sirens. It was five o'clock, but I wasn't sure I was going home. I stood in my apartment. My boyfriend, looking like Iggy Pop, long and lanky with black hair and blue eyes, stood in the room with me, his black clothes contrasting nicely with my light blue carpet. 
The south wall of the room was glass, two large windows open like sliding glass doors with no screens. A skunk jumped in through one window, crossed the carpet, and jumped out the other window. I barely had time to stand back and freeze, fearful of its spray, the scent of which I normally love, but only when it's carried in on the wind. Before I could recover, a possum tumbled in, and chasing it was a cheetah, right in through the first window, right out the second window. I was astonished. This was for sure a lucky sighting. The woman in charge of showing me a series of slides had long, honey-blonde hair. You'll be watching a bear, she said. As I watched in earnest, I noticed that there was sound and movement. One bear whispered into the ear of another. The one being whispered to spoke, and the voice was the voice of the woman showing me the slide. I shifted in my seat uncomfortably. I drove a black truck to visit Olympia. I had cats with me. I parked outside the garage of the first place I ever mud wrestled, and when I opened the door of the truck, the cats kind of spilled out. The cats weren't mine and I panicked. After unloading some containers of spoiled food, pasta, fruit, lentils, a bunch of cats caroused all around my feet. I was overwhelmed trying to figure out which one was the one I was missing. Some had little tiny slips of paper on the napes of their necks where you hold them when you want them to submit to the power of the mother cat. I saw numbers and some lettering on them, but none of it told me which cat was which. They all looked exactly alike. When I found the right one, I got him into the truck cab while all the others continued brushing against my feet and calves. The above-ground pool held our bodies in its cavernous deep. Everyone at the hotel had access to it. I held on to the concrete edges and pushed myself up and down in the water while I watched a little boy get very close to a dolphin, though someone called it a whale, that sped around in our midst, coming up nearest and plunging into the deep again. When the animal next surfaced, I saw it was indeed a small whale. A huge sea turtle lunged out of the water. The little boy threw himself at its shell playfully. I got angry. He acted as though this sea turtle was a toy. I swam around the edges of the pool looking for the boy's parents. They were drinking champagne, even though it was morning. They looked pale, groggy, overdressed. They barely paid any attention to me as I calmly suggested that they teach their son not to play rough with the animals. I swam away when I realized they weren't listening. The pool changed shape altogether, became shallower with no animals. A television was perched up in the corner of the gym-like room. The host of a local talk show announced that they would be doing a show on excommunication, which referred to excommunications from art groups. I smiled to myself and did laps. People around the pool began to get up and leave. Someone from school I didn't know well called out to me, Are you coming? I'm already an expert in being excommunicated, I cried out, almost laughing. I moved from the pool to a rented room with a large bed where I reclined. I held the remote and surfed channels. Wren was there. He looked older, stayed, dressed conservatively. He was seducing me as usual. I couldn't get past his attire. While we made the motions of foreplay, I wondered about why he had completely changed his look. I wasn't sure I liked it. I was the pallbearer. The body was contained in identical gift boxes, each the size of a watch box. My job was to put the body in order. As I worked, I noticed a box etched with the number eight, a box etched with a rose. C invited me over to his apartment in Seattle. I could tell he was very excited about something, and then he burst out that he and his girlfriend were moving in together. Suddenly, I was a fly on the wall in their bathroom. I watched his new girlfriend come in. She shut the door and began to tremble. Her eyes rolled back, and she started crying a scary, rage-filled lament 
though she barely made a sound. Hmm, I wondered, rubbing my legs together. Does he know about this? A television show about artists held my complete focus in my mother's living room, despite all the unfamiliar men also in the living room who were focused on me. The show was about two particular artists. They wore wild and colorful clothes. No one but me seemed interested, so people in the room talked about where they lived. An unfamiliar older woman I hadn't seen earlier asked me where I lived. In seedy, dirty Hollywood, and I love it, I said, enjoying every word. Someone with the initials DP rained biochemical weapons down on us. The palm trees were bombarded. We wilted in the intense heat of the explosions. Eloise told me of a writer's residency. I should attend it, but she warned me about the snakes on the way. If you can get past the snakes, you'll be fine, she said. I took a forest path that shifted from light to dark. The trees stood tall and skinny with white trunks, their branches blotting out the sky. The path became a very tight ledge, and I held on to the interlocking branches I found at eye level. Some of the branches, mossy and green, were not branches at all, but green snakes. Their heads stuck out in the few open spaces, still and waiting. I jumped off the ledge. The sun shone where I landed. I found a residence hall and saw Eloise. I interrupted her conversation to tell her that, unfortunately, there was no way I could get past those snakes. She seemed bothered by my presence, so I turned to leave. A green tortoise bus pulled up. Hippie-looking people tumbled off of it. I walked past them, back into the forest. It was daytime, and I was murdering my mother. I had knives, guns, and a cat of nine tails at my disposal. The only other person there was not trying to stop me, and neither was my mother. My blood was hot with the threat of something. I only knew this. I had to defend. I plunged the largest knife into her chest over and over. She would not die. I felt bone against the knife, disgust a smell that wouldn't leave my nose. I pulled the knife out of her body again, again. My slow murder of her happened all over the house. We landed on the porch. It felt like hours with only the noise of my torture, our heavy breathing, and gasps. Finally, I used the cat of nine tails on her head. Each swing was a miss. She urged me on. I paused for a moment. There was something to the fact of her urging me. There was a reason I had to kill her, and she wanted me to. I swung the instrument twice, each time bashing her forehead. Her face turned ashen, then green, and she fell against the front step. Terrified, sad, relieved, disgusted, I wondered what this would mean. I checked her to make sure she was dead. She smiled even in death. I stepped over her and into the house. I wore a red negligee and had an invisible sheet that functioned as a magic carpet. If in flight I flapped it just once, I went higher and higher in the sky. Eventually I landed on a brick wall behind a liquor store. A bunch of men were standing around outside of an old truck leering at me. I pretended I didn't see them and went inside. I was pregnant, had been for about seven months. I wasn't showing and was afraid S would know. The thought depressed me. Here I was, seven months pregnant, drinking alcohol, smoking, flying, and hadn't seen a doctor the entire time. My belly was firm. The filmmaker Michael Moore, Veronica, and I were on a road trip. At one of our stops, three rabid dog wolves surrounded us on a dirt playground. 
I learned that I had to be very quiet and move slowly, if at all, to get the animals to move away and pay attention to something else. I stood inside my fifth floor apartment in the tall brick building. My window was open and it was afternoon. Four young men were running along rooftops toward my apartment. One of the men flung three sticks of dynamite bound together with one fuse into my open window. I panicked and the other person in the apartment with me grew alarmed and I yelled, run! Off we dashed. I wanted to bang on all the doors of the apartments on our way down, but I had little to no energy in my arm. When I tried to pound my fist against one, it came out as a light knock, barely a tap. I yelled at invisible tenants to get out of the building. I ran into no one on the way down. From a block away, I watched the building explode. The detail of the side of the building that had been my apartment fell into itself, collapsing, crumbling down, a straight line that transformed into a cloud of dust. I thought of the writing left behind in that apartment and how I had lost it all. My grandmother walked faster than I had seen her walk in years. I sat in a station wagon parked at a curb and watched her cross the street, walking a small incline, swift. I was amazed. When she walked back to the car, she lit up a cigarette. I was almost as shocked by this as I was by her speed. She hadn't smoked in about 40 years. I looked down at the business card of the man I was attracted to. The words on his business card, Clover Father. The United States had closed all of its borders. I was in a hotel room when I found out on the East Coast near the Canadian border. There was a government man in a blue suit charged with calming large crowds of people. He told us that we could not leave the country, and in fact, we could not go anywhere but the immediate area. The crowd protested amongst itself. We could not believe this turn of events. I said aloud, perhaps we can go underwater and declare water sovereign. I was half joking. At the Canadian border, a woman read a prepared statement telling us why we could not cross. It was clear from the way she held her mouth tensely as she read that she had not written it herself. A number of us in the crowd protested her outright. In the small swell of panic, I contemplated what I would do, set fires, burn my way out of the country. On my way to school in Portland, I saw my professor, Michael Moore, at a bus stop. When I showed up late for the test, he came over to my desk and showed me the many-paged exam with lots of his pen marks on it. He told me I was late and he didn't know if I could finish the test. I looked up at him. I know I'm late, I said. They surrounded the bus stop I always leave from with orange cones and the bus was late, making my trip to school two hours long. He put the exam on my desk. I carried a large backpack, the one I take traveling, and in it was my light blue uniform from Catholic school. I had to change into it and did, covertly, for Michael Moore's class. Also in my backpack was a bomb. It looked like a car battery, only instead of a digital readout showing the countdown, it resembled an old-fashioned gas station readout, numbers that rolled into the next number. I had about four minutes to place the bomb somewhere it could safely detonate to not hurt anyone. I wasted 90 seconds trying to figure out where to take it, I jumped into a non-motorized vehicle and drove off under the cloudy sky. When I found an elementary school set back in the woods, I knew I'd found the right spot. I walked right through the empty classrooms to the backyard past the playground where I spotted a deep marsh. It would be best to leave the bomb there. It could create a sinkhole and I might avoid taking any lives. I left it in the marsh and mud and walked quickly back through the classrooms. The classrooms now had teachers in them who eyed me as I moved to exit. I knocked over someone's glass of iced tea. Sorry, I said, and left the building. I didn't realize I had a serious cut in the bottom of my foot until I walked down the carpeted stairs of the unfamiliar house. I left a trail of thick blood in my wake. I sat down in a chair and looked at the bottom of my foot. 
In the most tender part was a gash, and the blood wouldn't stop flowing. Sharon Olds helped me clean up the cut. Her manner was gentle, mothering. I grimaced and squealed in her hands with the feel of the liquid she used stinging my open wound. My mother's head was in a puddle of water, and I put a pillow over her face. At the very last moment before she could drown or suffocate, I removed the pillow. I was overcome with sorrow and pain at my actions. I put the pillow back over her face. I gave birth to a baby girl. I was at my mother's house. I was dressed in a white half-slip and long-sleeved white silk shirt. A cat asked me if I would nurse her. I knew it was weird. I looked around. I could find a private place. I said yes. In my childhood bedroom, I situated the cat on one breast and the little girl on the other. I called the little girl Lupita. Thank you. Questions? Yeah. You don't actually like the smell of skunks, do you? Mm-hmm. I do. Oh. Yeah. I, 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 I was curious if there was just a quirk of your, uh, of your, of your protagonist as a, as a result of the experience. No, actually, this is this this is a smell that I still enjoy. Um, I think that a lot of the protagonists. Um, Feelings, ideas, thoughts, and certainly the people that she interacts with, they're all based in the what I think of as like the above ground plane, the plane that we're all agreeing to be on right now here together. Um, I noticed like a repetition of the theme of explosions mm-hmm. throughout. Is that something that is all throughout the book? Yes. Yeah. Um, so you've have you dreamt of explosions, other people here? Explosions. No explosions? Well, well, whenever I think of an explosion, usually it causes a, an nuclear bomb to go off in some random location. Huh. And, I have, and, I, and I race to put my hands to, to my ear, and they're as slow as a sloth. Whoa, yeah. That's sort of similar to like when I was trying to knock on the doors to like get the people out of the apartment, and every time it was like, There'd be no strength in my arm, and I would just like barely tap it when I was trying to put all my energy into it. The only only silver line is that there was no heat flash. Mm hmm. Huh. Yeah, so explosions are just like, I think that they're a part of my dreaming whenever I'm going through particularly stressful events. So this book has a lot of explosions a lot of natural disasters. Um, so, yeah, that, that particular time, a lot of tsunamis were happening in my dreams at that, at that point in time. And also, this is um, not long after um, 9-11, and I'm sure that that it kind of infiltrated my dreams, too. I couldn't say that there's any significance other than it's like my favorite color. So it's kind of funny to me that it would come up in conversation in my dreams. It's not something that I really think very deeply about, like on this plane or, you know, it's just like a preference. But for some reason that that was thematically there and it does show up in other dreams in this book. So it's very odd. I don't have an interpretation. I try to stay away from interpretation of these dreams as much as possible. Um, I was actually, um, if you're familiar with Harper's Magazine, they've, I, I, they've been doing this forever, and certainly they were doing this in like 1999 or 2000. The section that's in the middle, it's called Readings, and they're basically pulling excerpts from all of these different just sources all over. And I remember pulling one out, tearing it out, and like carrying it with me from Olympia to Los Angeles when I moved back to L.A. And it was... 
an excerpt they, they had taken from a zine where people had been writing their dreams as reportage. So the word dream was never used. And they were written as though, like, you know, somebody was just reporting the dream like it had actually happened. And I was so intrigued by that. And I loved that as a constraint that I was just like, I'm going to start doing this with my dreams and see what they look like. So that's what compelled me to initially do that. And I've certainly looked at dream interpretation books. I find them interesting. My book has an index that is supposed to be similar to the dream interpretation book indexes, but I tend to stay away from interpreting them. Yeah. Mm. That's hard for me to say now for myself because I don't dream at all the way that I used to dream. My dreams are so, they feel pretty scarce to me. Um, I'm really lucky if I wake up with like one image. It's, that's very unusual now for me to even have like a person or an image or maybe a word. It'd be great if I could pull words out of dreams because I used to be able to do that. But now I, I just don't have the same access that I had before. So I, now I wouldn't say that they have any particular um, significance or impact because I just can't access them the same way. Um, but when I do, I do end up trying to like pull what I can out of it, but it's so rare that I can't, it, it's, it's just not there for me anymore. Maybe it will be again, but it, isn't, it hasn't been for a while. It seems like these writings are kind of inside out. You know? I was going to say backwards, but inside mm-hmm. out seems more like it. Almost seems like the last line is like the droplet of water, in which there's a last line, and then you reflect into the middle, and, mm-hmm. and that's that kind of gives it content. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I wonder whether this technique could be outside in and using it in a way to deal with waking reality because oftentimes I think of waking reality it's a little bit like that my first thought was a little bit like a haiku uh-huh. uh, you know that 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 you could actually bring this estrangement into some quirky relationship in the outside because the problem and it's not a problem. Uh-huh, the problem uh-huh. I have with it, in a sense, is the dream, because it's a dream state, it, in a sense, makes it easy for the inside out. Mm-hmm. And I think if there was the twist of the outside in, it would give it more surprise and tension. Hmm. And I wonder whether you would have thought of that, you know, looking at the reflection in mm-hmm. Um, that's really fascinating. Um, I have to say that really the way that I approached this was I wanted to show these dreams. They're all chronological. Um, I was keeping them on a, on a website before the word blog was in use, but it was technically a blog. So I would have the dreams. I would type them onto this website, probably had an audience of like three or four people, like my friends. So when the website came down, I basically pulled all of the text, put it in a Word document, knew I was going to do something with it at some point. And when I finally was ready to, it was like 330 single space pages because it included all the HTML. So I went through and edited it. So I did take dreams out, which was very specific. But my intent here was to try to have enough dreams and enough material that would show some of the some of the the themes that were like you know cats appear all the time in these dreams there were some thematic things i wanted to have a thread that went through but really what i was interested in was having these dreams kind of sit by themselves but also be a part of a narrative of a person overall so it was i felt like i was going back and forth between keeping some sort of narrative through line going with this protagonist who goes through all kinds of weird things. Uh, this, the characters 
just keep revolving in and out. And these are the same characters that have appeared in my other books. So they all have the same pseudonyms. So it's just this ongoing narrative. But I wanted each dream to be able to sit by itself as a story, too. Um, so I did edit with that in mind. I'm going to have to think more about what you're saying. That's really interesting to me, and I hadn't thought of it this way. Thank you. Yeah, for some reason in that last dream, there there's, there was something that felt more connected than in a lot of the previous dreams. In a lot of the previous dreams, it's like I walk into a room and there's a child there that I'm like, uh, oh, I'm supposed to take care of this baby, or and I don't know who it is, and usually it's a little boy. Um, or I'm pregnant, and I'm there's several dreams where I'm pregnant, and I'm figuring it out and just going, oh, no, what did I do? And usually I'm like seven months pregnant, so it's like, ah, I can't do anything now. So there's a lot of those dreams. That particular dream, though, there was some weird connection, but I think it was the cat that was doing the connecting for us. Yes? Hi, thanks for your reading. It was really wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I really um, I'm fascinated by this idea of a dream war mm-hmm. uh, and thinking about the relationship between dream and memory mm-hmm. and memoir. Uh, which eventually is often thought of as kind of this exploration of the self and this kind of first person work, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about my own dreams, and I imagine this, I don't know if this, this is a side question, I imagine as you read this, uh, continue to read from the book, yeah. people want to tell you their dreams. Because uh-huh. I, yes. I was I was listening, I was like, I want to tell you this dream I had about mm-hmm. Santana last night. Because <laughs> uh, I did. And, uh, but maybe afterwards, later. But... Uh, but what I find is that a lot of times, like that moment where the perspective shifts to the uh, the, the fly. On yeah. The wall. Uh-huh. And I didn't know if that was literal or figurative, because I know that's an expression. But uh-huh. but that does happen for me. Uh-huh. Where yes. The, it does to me too. The kind of boundaries between self and other yes. are, are very fluid. Right? Yes. And I'm suddenly now the, the spectator mm-hmm. through what I was. Um, uh, so. Thinking about that, uh, I'm, I'm interested in asking about uh, your own doing this work and thinking about uh, your own approach to uh, memoir and, and, and first-person writing. So has this work doing the dream war changed your thinking about writing memoir mm-hmm. and writing from mm-hmm. self or, or, mm-hmm. or um, first-person narrative? Yeah, so that's a really... I mean, that I feel like I'm going to keep trying to figure out the answer to that as I write because I'm what I look at now with the three books is I've excavation to me is very much um, the sort of more traditional chronological narrative like it definitely jumps back and forth in time but it's still overall pretty traditional in terms of chronology memoir it's so that that's the first book and then the second book I kind of did something different there and was working with a lot of fragments. Um, The second book, Hollywood Notebook, was written at the same time as this book on a different website. So I was keeping these things at the same time. And so that's why I will always see these two books as like this. These are my parallel lives at that period of time. Like here's the above ground and here was the underground stuff. Um, So the narrative in Hollywood Notebook is super fragmentary. I think of it as prose poemish all the time. Um, it has a lot of white space just like Bruja does. And I think that there's some, there's some interesting relationship aside from just the, the, the parallel life. There's like something about the way that I tried to write these two books that I'm still trying to articulate. Like how did, how did I go from A to B to C because I'm curious now what D is going to look like. I don't know what the next book is going to look like. But they seem to just keep kind of going. Um, they're spiraling. They're doing something weird and going further interior to the point where now I feel like any first-person work that I do, I'm trying to use so many less words. And it's so it's becoming, I don't know what's happening with it. 
it's it's still in process. Um, I personally wish that every writer would write their dream war. Some dream war. Like, you take a period of time. I want to know what's going on in the psyches of my favorite writers. And to me, this is one of the ways to, like, you get a side door in and you find out what else is going on. And, um, yeah, so this book ends up feeling like it's somehow the most... It feels like it's the most vulnerable one because I, I didn't try and... I didn't try to change anything about what was going on for this person. It was like, oh, she clearly struggles with, you know, monogamy because that keeps coming up. She clearly struggles with drinking. That that comes up constantly and certainly in Hollywood notebooks. So it's like these different perspectives of the same person, but very, very different, which is how I feel like I operate in the world, too. So, yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, I'm, I'm most curious by, by almost all of the, the last line uh-huh. because they seem to have a conclusion that not not the usual you know narrative conclusion in which everything's wrapped up, but it's left at a state that's sort of like floating. I, I think of it, you know, like like in music, it's almost like a modulation hmm. that sort of fades out rather than mm-hmm. da, 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 right. So, are you trying? Is that a technique that you're trying to use to deconstruct the narrative and leave it in this sort of like, like platform, but it's not wrapped up? It's a kind of like, and, and I mean, on the one hand, it's logical, but on the other hand, it's sort of like a little dissatisfying, but on the other hand, okay, because like that's how things are. Mm-hmm. So, are you consciously trying to do that at all? I guess maybe maybe I'm shying away from the word technique because I don't think of this as like something that I approached in that way. It was just exactly the way that I told you that I approached it in terms of like looking. These are like short. It's it's um it's like flash nonfiction. That's how each of these looks to me. Um, But I happen to know the threads that that bind them all together. With some, of, I, I can't say that all the dreams end that way either. I mean, I happen to read the dreams that end with that kind of line, but not all of them, I think, do that. And I can't call it a technique because it just seemed like that was the way to, to sort of, you know, pull it together, but also not pull it together at all. Because dreams, I don't even know how dreams really end. I couldn't tell you that these dreams ended the exact way because sometimes they go into another dream or, you know, I have no idea if it went into another dream. I woke up. I don't know. So I just tried to have a line, I guess, for some of these that seemed to, like, encapsulate the, the queer dream logic. It's just bizarre. Like, there's no way to just sort of wrap it up and say this is how it was. Well, so many of them seem to, like, end, but... I mean, there does seem to be an ellipse behind it. Like, mm. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk, um, the, the, there are a few different um, groups of people in the room, and some of them are um, beginning fiction, or writers in a beginning fiction mm-hmm. class at large, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily writing majors. I mm-hmm. see many grad students here, cross mm-hmm. um, genre grad students. Um, and I... I think about a lot about the difference between writing and creating literature. Mm-hmm. And that line can get really... Um, the, uh, making a blog mm-hmm. can be somewhere between mm-hmm. those things, right? It's like a pub- yeah. It can be like a public diary, yes. but it's constructed for a readership, obvi- more obviously. Yeah. Can, so I have one qu- a question about, for you, the difference between creating writing or making writing or doing writing and creating literature mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then the second question if you, if you can keep them in yeah. mind other way, um, is and thank you so much for coming up by the oh, way yeah, I'm so glad to have you but um, uh, is what do you think the difference between having a dream personally mm-hmm. and staging a dream for someone else's experience uh-huh. is? Uh-huh. Given that they both happen in a mind. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so going back to the first question, um, that makes me think of how I was 
how I went about editing the book because I, I was basically taking all of the blah blah that I just typed up, which definitely, you know, to me was like my audience of three. They're going to appreciate this because they know what I'm talking about, but I'm not trying to create literature here. When I went in to edit it with the intention of making a book, then I had to make very specific decisions about how someone was going to approach this without knowing me at all and how they were going to connect to it. And I, I certainly have heard enough of other people's dreams that I, it's like, okay, there are some thematic things that some of us go, yeah, that's part of my dreams. I mean, I don't know how many of you kill your mothers in dreams, but um, that was really big at this period of time. And um, how, do I, how do I kind of tap into something that might be familiar on some level to people, but also have it be unfamiliar at the same time because this is my psyche, and how do I show the development of this character, the protagonist, as well as all of the other characters? Because, like, there's a character named Michael in here who keeps showing up in Olympia, and there's also a place called Olympia that's not Olympia, because some of us have those dreams where you go and you're like, oh, I'm in blah, blah, but it's actually not that place at all, but you keep going back there in your dreams. So how do I... How do I edit this in such a way that this will be something that you could still follow a person through a story in some way, um, even though it's going to be jarring and it's going to take weird turns? You know, so the editing of it was really, really difficult, and that to me was when I was trying to make it go from writing to literature because. Revising each piece, not yes. ordering them because you ordered. No, them. I left Your them. Constraint was chronology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, all of these had actual dates attached to them, which are meaningful probably only to me. And even my editors were like, "If you want to leave them in, great." But it's like that's only meaningful to me. And in the end, we decided to group them by month. And even then, when I look at the months, I never read the months out loud, but I see the months, and it's, all it is is like a marker of something over time, but it doesn't tell you what year or anything like that. It's just so you know time is passing. A whole like month, there could be just one dream that was remembered and that was re- put here. But I know that I edited out some of the dreams because you don't need to have a million dreams about cats, but maybe you need like five weird dreams about cats. Um, so that was... I was trying to keep all of these things in mind, and my editors, I love my editors, but they they were not, they didn't really offer so much to me in terms of um, what dreams do I keep in? Which are the most useful dreams to have here? Like, what would be the most entertaining? They didn't, they were just like, you figure it out. And also the writing the last dream. I had to write the last dream, because how do you end a book of dreams? Like, what what's the last dream in the book mean? Um, so that was another area where I had to come up with something new. That, so that's the one piece of new writing, other than just the editing of these dreams. I basically decided that I was just going to wait and see if a dream came to me. And the luckily one did, and I still did not realize that that was the ending of the book. But in talking to a couple of people, they were like, that's the ending of the book. And I was like, oh, yes, of course it's the ending of the book. But so that was like a... That just came, and I was happy that came. I don't know how I would have ended it otherwise. So it felt like it was, you know, certainly, it was definitely scary because I did not know how accessible this would be to people, to strangers, in the sense that there are people in the world who hate hearing dreams, and I totally am fine with that. This is not their book. But as somebody who loves hearing dreams and talking about them with people and wanting to wanting to read other writers dreamoirs it's like okay i'm going to try and do this as artfully as possible um and the the easiest way to do that is to take them piece by piece and try to shape them into tiny stories that somehow have a connective tissue because it's the same character moving through all these weird scenarios so that was kind of the guiding principle um Second part of the question, I missed that part. It doesn't matter. We have time for one more <laughs> oh, okay. question. Yeah. Why did you title the book Bruja? Mm-hmm. Bruja to me 
is um, it's a word that in my family we use to say about the women in our family, like, she is a little bit witchy. She's got something that we we can't pinpoint. And certainly my mother and my grandmother, to them, Bruja is, like, slightly pejorative. It's, um, like, they don't want to be that. But at the same time, they've both shown me over the years that they have abilities that would be considered in this culture, you know, this American culture to be kind of witchy. So, but they will never own that. So, to me, magical, magical, yeah, yeah, not me, well, mean too, but also, but, but my primary feeling is, yes, it's, it's magical. And so to me, this was a character that, you know, she gets to fly, she gets to do all of these things, she has all of these abilities, and she has all of these powers. And I've been called this by friends and by family members, and it felt like, yeah, this is what this is. This is the ability to live on more than one plane. This is the ability to have these powers in a different realm of my life. And you know, even when I felt particular at this period of time, I felt pretty powerless in many ways. So it was like in my dream life, I had different abilities and different powers. And because it's a word that's familiar in my family, it just felt like a, yes, that's, that's it. I didn't have any other ideas for titles. It was just like coming up with the last dream. I didn't, I had no idea what it would be. But when I, when I thought about it, that was exactly the right word. And you have books for sale. I do have books for sale. Thank you so much yeah. for coming. Thank um, you. And, uh, and people can buy books, and I bet you will even get a signature if you like. They're $10 because They're $10. I don't want to carry them on my back back to Los Angeles. They're $10. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks.